Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. According to Deseret News, protesters rallied and marched on Thursday, calling for free tuition at public universities, cancellation of all student debt, and implementation of a $15 minimum hourly wage for university employees. This happened at University of Utah. At highest attendance, about 65 people attended the Million Students March outside of the University of Utah's reopen student union building. One of the participants, uh, Dennis Potter, associate professor of philosophy at Utah Valley University, said education should not be a debt sentence. According to the Utah Foundation, the amount of student debt in the U.S. Uh, amounts to almost $1.3 trillion. They compare that to uh, that's the amount of U.S. currency currently in circulation today. And Associated Press reports that now student debt for some families is a multi-generational uh, phenomenon. Uh, the Utah Foundation reports that uh, Utah, good news, uh, doesn't uh, track uh, quite as severely as the, the rest of the nation. And uh, average student debt is about $28,000 or $29,000 for the class of 2014 across the nation. Um, we're going to be talking the first half of the program with some of the organizers of this march. In the second half, we'll uh, check in with Utah Foundation and with the Urban Institute to talk about some of the ins and outs of uh, student debt and uh, also tuition. Uh, we bring in Ian Decker, who's with the Revolutionary Student Union. Uh, Ian Decker, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And we also welcome in Samuel Grenny, who's with Utah Millennials for Bernie. Thanks for joining us. How you doing? Thanks for having us. Bernie is Bernie Sanders, I assume. That is correct. All right. And uh, the other organization, I believe, uh, which uh, helped organize this march was the Socialist Alternative. Uh, let me start with uh, Ian Decker. Why did you organize this uh, this march? Um, well, for multiple reasons. One of the main ones is that we believe that education is a right. Um, as it stands right now, if you want to get a decent education and provide a decent living for your family, it often means going into, or yourself for that matter, it often means going into, you know, 10 plus years of debt, you know, five plus years of debt. We just think that's unacceptable. Um, the amount of money our, our, we produce as a society uh, can easily provide education for all of us. We believe it's right. Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. What What are you studying? I'm su- I'm studying political science. Um, I'm currently not a student at the University of Utah. I'm at Salt Lake Community College. Um, and yeah, I'm studying political science. I hope to someday become a teacher. Um, but first, I'm going to probably end up working for the union at UPS. Hmm. Uh, do you have, I guess you have student loans, do you have student debt accumulating? Um, so I'm currently at Salt Lake Community College, so it's it's fairly affordable right now. Okay. I'm paying for most of it on my own, but if mm-hmm. I plan to go to the University of Utah, then like all my friends who are there, I'll probably start accumulating student debt very quickly. Right. Let me turn to Samuel Grenny with Utah Millennials for Bernie. Uh, first of all, your uh, your story, What are you going, where are you going to school? So I went to Utah Valley University. I finished up about two years ago. Okay. Did you come out with debt? No. So actually, I was I was lucky enough. I took a couple student loans out here and there when I needed them, but they were small enough that I was able to repay them. And then my parents uh, had to deal with me, and they took care of me. They were able to pay for my education, so mm-hmm. I was lucky that way. Well, it sounds like both of you gentlemen are are you know doing doing this the smart way. Um, I, I imagine you have friends, family, acquaintances who are accumulating some pretty serious debt. Maybe start with Samuel Grenny on this one. 
Yeah, yeah. So that's why I'm concerned about this. And that's why I always laugh a little bit when people call me, you know, lazy or entitled and I'm looking for free stuff because the reality is I never have had to face tuition or student loans. But I've really seen with my generation, especially disproportionately minorities, that they're affected by this and that it actually makes education exclusive. It cuts some off to being able to get the advantages that I was just given because of where I was born. And Ian Decker, what about your experience? Uh, Friends, family, acquaintances? So similar with Sam, you know, I see a lot of people around me accumulating debt, but even furthermore, I know a lot of people around me who are straight up priced out of education. Um, and it's, it's for reasons like they don't want to accumulate debt. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when someone's undocumented, when someone's, you know, there's lots of reasons why people can't even afford education, and they just, you know, end up deciding against it. And I think that's also horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, to just add on to, sorry, yeah, I, I think that's the main problem here in a lot of ways, is that a lot of people are priced out of education as well as going into education and becoming in debt. Uh, so I guess, you know, some people, uh, Ian, you're you're going to Salt Lake Community College, you, maybe later University of Utah, more affordable at Salt Lake Community College. And some might say, well, we ought to restructure the education system so that most are going to community colleges, and therefore, by that method, not piling up debt. Um, so I would tend to disagree with that. Um, I mean, I think it'd be better, of course. Um, but also, you know, in most industrialized countries, education is a right. Um, or if it's not a right, it's extremely affordable. So maybe a little bit more similar to the community college system where it's very, very heavily subsidized. Um, but also the big reason, you know, that would involve cutting administration, cutting administrative, uh, you know, like there's a lot of things that contribute to this between administrative bloat and small privatization measures within universities that make this so expensive. Um, and honestly, like, you know, the, between the amount of money we already spend and the amount of money that we give, like tax cuts to large corporations and stuff, we could easily make it free in this country. Hmm. I wonder, uh, to follow up with that, Ian, um, is there a model that I noticed one of the persons at the the march mentioned Chile, uh, and there are some nations in, in Europe which I think essentially have free, uh, you know, university education. Is there a model that you'd look to? Um, well, I mean, one particular model, I, like, I wouldn't say there's any one perfect model at this point, honestly, but, I mean, there's a lot of better models. The U.K., it's not totally free, but it's extremely cheap. In Germany, it's free. Um, you know, I, I think, and it was Sam, actually, who mentioned Chile um, in, in his speech, I'm pretty sure. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I, I would uh, I would say that there's lots of different models around the world, but basically uh, you can look to any other industrialized nation as a better model than what we have now. So, Sam McGrenny, what uh, you look to, to a particular model? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you can look at other models abroad as good examples of how to do it. The model, obviously, that I'm favorable towards that I really like is what Bernie Sanders has proposed, which is a speculative tax on Wall Street that then will more than pay for each year higher education at all public schools and universities. Why well, I like that is it's a two-edged sword. I think, I mean, the way he says it is we bailed out Wall Street in 2008. Now it's their chance to bail out America. And I think that what we're seeing now is flux, continual fluctuation in the market because of unnecessarily speculation. That's often baseless. It's just about, you know, dividends that can be made off micro-trading. So when you put a speculative tax on it, both uh, inhibits needless speculation while providing education for all of America. And I think that's a fair price for Wall Street to pay. Mm. Now, I'm sure at least Republicans listening are going to say that's socialism. That's a pretty extreme, uh, you know, redistribution of, of wealth. Uh, socialism, I'm guessing, not a, not a bad word to you, but it would be for, you know, some of the country. 
Well, let me clarify the way that I would say that. I mean, for anyone that has studied political science, that's not socialism. Socialism is an owner's, you know, is the worker's own ownership of the means of production. So what we're talking about is a type of redistribution. Uh, socialism is about correct distribution from the beginning. So what we're just talking about is finding a way to make things fair after they've been distributed in somewhat inequitable ways. Uh, we're not asking about taking the steel mills back or taking control of, you know, the car plants. We're, we're just talking about redistributing. Hmm. Now, Ian Decker, to implement your plan, um, the, the government would have to get heavily involved, right? If you, if you cancel student debt, companies would get out of the business, I'm sure, and it, this would oh. fall to government. Well, yeah, I mean, it would involve the government, but not nearly as much. I think that a lot of what Sam was saying and a lot of what Bernie Sanders is talking about, and this is, you know, I'm not, I'm not a perfect fan of Bernie Sanders, but I mean, I think that generally uh, speculative tax on Wall Street, higher taxes on multi-billion-dollar companies, I and honestly, like, just less tax cuts for them um, could contribute. I mean, I, just locally even um, here in Utah, like, less tax cuts for million-billion-dollar companies. Uh, it's... It, you know, like there's a lot of ways we could do this, but it's not like a heavy-handed government response um, in, in any measure. It's, it's just an adjustment of taxes mm-hmm. where we're getting the taxes. I wonder, uh, let me start with this one with uh, Sam. I'd like to get perspective of both of you gentlemen on this one. Uh, I think both, both of you used the, the word right, that education should be a right. And in some countries, they're treating it, in, in your view, uh, more as a right. Um, I think the, the view in this country would be by a lot of people is that it is a ticket to the middle class perhaps that's reducing over time but that you should have to work hard and earn it and you're saying uh, Samuel let me start with you you're saying this should be a right yeah absolutely so I mean I think it's really important to point out that we are not saying anything should be given to anyone in fact what we're fighting against is things like privatized education which are devaluating the worth of of real uh, degrees on the market. What we want is everyone to have an opportunity to earn degrees. No one's asking for these things to be given out for free. So education as a right really means that um, in our country, the way it's set up, education is a necessary stepping stone to achieving success. So if it becomes inaccessible to certain segments of our population, that makes our that means success in our country is exclusive and isn't accessible to certain segments of our population. So the only way to be fair and as advanced of an economy as we have is to have education that is available to all. And again, we're not asking for anything for free. We're just begging that we give everyone the opportunity to earn what we already have the chance to earn. Ian Decker, what do you think? Um, I think that Sam actually said it very perfectly. We're not looking for people to get free degrees. We're not looking like we think that education is a right. Um, if you look at other countries, it's considered an extension of basic school um, mm. often. I, I, and I, th- I kind of look at it the same way. If someone doesn't have access to high school where they're at, that's a problem. And it seriously hinders their future. If they don't have access to elementary school, then that's a huge problem. And I think this is the same way, is that this is just an extension of the education that's necessary to make it in the world. And the fact that people are going into debt in order to acquire this education and in order to acquire the degrees to make the money is, I mean, like, especially in a nation like the richest nation in the planet, it's it's a disgrace, I think. If you just joined us, we are talking about uh, the Million Students March. This apparently is a national phenomenon. It happened on the University of Utah campus on Thursday. 
And uh, according to reports from Deseret News, uh, some 65 people attended that. And uh, Dennis Potter, Associate Professor of Philosophy, Utah Valley University, at the march said education should not be a debt sentence. Uh, we're talking with Ian Decker from Revolutionary Student Union and Samuel Grenny from Utah Millennials for Bernie. Later in the program, we're going to be talking with Christopher Collard, research analyst with Utah Foundation, and Matthew Chingos, who is a senior fellow with the Urban Institute. And we'd love to hear from you. What do you think? 1-800-826-1495, our toll-free number, 1-800-826-1495. You can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, gentlemen, uh, just want, I want to get into the next part of the discussion by quoting uh, someone who commented on the Deseret News page, response to the story. This is Brave Sir Robin in San Diego, California. This is hyperbole. He's, he's, <laughs> he's taking it to the nth degree, but uh, it's, I want to talk about a reality check. This is what he says. Um, Free tuition, forgiveness of all student uh, loan debt, $15 minimum wage. Why stop there? Why not call for free cars for everyone and a $150 minimum wage? And, of course, he's over the top there. But maybe starting with Ian Decker on this one, uh, is this really realistic? Um, I absolutely think it is. Uh, so, science, well, and this isn't the same for every state, but the living wage um, on average is, like, considered to be like, you know, this is considered to be the living wage. Like, I can, it, it's more close to $22 an hour in most states, which is, I mean, and that's, in, and that's an incredible amount. Most people don't make that money. Um, and most people live okay. I think that $15 an hour is absolutely reasonable. Uh, you know, if, if we're talking about people getting paid too much, about people getting paid too, you know, $150 an hour or whatever, you know, let's look at the administration. Let's look at, uh, let's at these people who are making, like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a day. Uh, the, the the head coach at University of Utah makes $2.6 million a year. Um, so really, if we want to talk about people getting paid too much and, you know, all the problems associated with that, we should really talk. We're, we're, pointing, we're pointing our crosshairs in the wrong direction. Hmm. Um, free cars, whatever. Uh, if our economy could sustain that, then I think we should do it, but I don't think our economy can sustain that. $15, $15 minimum wage can absolutely be sustained. Um, whether or not it's a realistic political demand in the state right now, whether we can achieve is yet to be said. Um, but, you know, obviously we're not a union state. However, uh, we're committed. I know I've talked to Sam, I've talked to a lot of these people. We're committed to uh, to going into a protracted struggle in order to win these things. Um, we're establishing real organizations that are going to be fighting for years to come. So, I mean, it's not something abstract, just that we're making this one demand in this one event. Uh, this is going to be something that's going to be happening for the next years. And I'll hold off on asking uh, Samuel Grady the same question. We do have a caller. I want to go to to them uh, here. Uh, John in Moab is called. Glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, good morning. Hey, I, I hear a lot of these discussions, and I'm quite a fan of NPR, so that explains that. But uh, I have two points I wanted to make. One is... Uh, the function of, and maybe your guests can discuss this, the function of cash in a capitalist system, which basically exists everywhere on the planet and has existed for 10,000 years, uh, the function of cash is in exchange. And we can't have exchange if only one side has the money and they want to sell to the other side, say, in terms of, say, class or groups or whatever you want to call them. Um, and the other point is perspective. Why is it that 
when you redis when you give money to the poor in the way of increased wages and benefits and so on it's called socialist redistribution but when you give money to the rich it's called a well functioning economy it makes no sense at all in light of the first part of the question which is function of cash is exchange and could you guys talk about that please okay thanks uh, john appreciate that so let me start with uh, samuel what do you what do you think so I'm trying to, so I mean, the function of cash exchange, I'm wondering, I'm, I can't figure out exactly what that, if that's applying to saying once we make education, um, is that applying to education or the $15 minimum wage? If we're talking about the $15 minimum wage, then yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly in line with what we're saying. What we're talking about is, you know, that it's the opposite of trickle-down economics. When you're giving the wealthy more money, it stays in the hands of the wealthy. When you give the middle and lower class more money, it circulates back into the economy and grows the economy. But yeah, but supplying the correct amount of money to the workers is tough. Um, and then the second point, I mean, it, it lends exactly to what we're talking about with the 15 now movement, which is, I mean, we can talk about an economy that, that can't afford to do this, but what that basically means is the system we're functioning under is one wherein working full time is not enough for you to get to get in by, for you to survive, which is already a problem. And then we're also talking about a system which gives you know, billions and billions of dollars a year in subsidies to corporations, and we can afford to do that. So I think it's, it's definitely, like what Ian said, we're looking in the wrong direction when we're asking if we can't afford $15 an hour. Uh, Ian Decker, what do you think about John's uh, points? Um, I think that, I mean, and again, I, I'm part of the Revolutionary Student Team. We don't believe that the capitalist system's great. Um, but if you look at the problems facing the capitalist system today, the biggest thing is, uh, at least in America, is a demand is a demand-sided shortfall or demand-side shortage. I mean, people don't have enough money to buy all the goods on the economy. Um, so, yeah, I think that increasing, both increasing the minimum wage to $50 an hour and making college tuition free will put more money into the lower middle classes, which will then boost the economy in general. Um, I think this is a, you know, I, I, most economists would agree, um, if you read, like, experts' opinions, it's higher minimum wages actually pumps money into the economy, boosts things. Um, and yeah, I don't, and, and again, I don't think that it's, it's socialism. Um, as Sam talked about, I think that the big reason why it's called that is just because the media likes to throw around buzzwords. Mm. Um, which is, it's important to remember. Now, you gentlemen, I, I can't remember which, I think it might have been Ian who had talked earlier about uh, wondering, and I think you'd be joined in that wondering by many people, whether these demands could be met in the current political climate in Utah. And I wonder, uh, start with Ian Decker on this one, you know, what what you think is realistic? Reduced tuition, you know, uh, probably not going to get all of your demands in the current political climate in Utah. Um, so right now, uh, the Revolutionary yeah. Students Union at University of Utah, um, and we're actually about to probably be starting up a, a chapter at Utah State University, um, we're going to be mobilizing on other campuses as well. We're demanding a tuition freeze in Utah every year, uh, and this is this fluctuates. Last year, the Board of Regents upped; uh, they increased tuition by three percent um, and three point five percent at University of Utah. Um, in we're, we're part of a national network called Students for Democratic Society, and in other states, uh, in other parts of the country, we've won tuition freezes in some of the most conservative states in the country. Um, and some, even if it's just at one private university. Um, but, I mean, the point is is that it can be one. Um, we've seen it being one. 
but we're, we got to make our demands realistic and we got to remain committed and uh, disciplined to what we're doing. And I think that with the people we have, we're absolutely capable. I've been talking with Sam. I've been talking with Socialist Alternative. I've been talking with the Revolutionary Students Union. I've been working with people from the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. And they are all very committed, very experienced people who are, you know, who are also committed to this demand. So can it be won? I think, again, that's to be said. But I think that if it can be won, it's, it's going to be now or within the next few months. What do you think, uh, Sammy Grunny? What, uh, what do you think is realistic? What, what are you hoping for? Yeah, so, I mean, if you're talking about realistic, it's about, it's about time and duration. This is the kicking off of the movement. So, like Ian said, we have this tuition freeze demand because that's something that has been met in many schools across the country. We know it's doable, and it's a, and it's a demand that can be a rolling demand. So once we get that met, we can move forward to bigger things. It's all about building a movement and creating efficacy. So right now, do I think by the end of this year, will we have you know, cancellation of student debt or free tuition or any of that? No, of course not. But do I think that we can absolutely achieve a tuition freeze and build to a larger national student movement? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we're working on. There's just a few minutes left in this part of the program. I want to, uh, I'll start with Samuel Grenny with this one. Um, I wonder how this fits in, how you see this fitting in, the protests that, that you organized. With a larger, um, I don't know if it's a movement, but it seems to be more issues being protested on campuses. University of Missouri, current, uh, you know, the, the, the current, the latest uh, big protest, which, which had seismic effects on that campus, uh, Yale uh, being another one. How do you see this fitting in? Yeah, so I'll say, and this may sound a little ambitious, but to me, I think that what we're doing is a cornerstone to what will be a bigger, our generation stepping forward to be heard on the national stage. Um, I think that, like I said, education will be the key to whether or not our whole generation is enfranchised or whether segments of it are left behind. So I think us winning this battle now will be, you know, will be the stepping stone moving forward to then our whole generation being able to step into the spotlight and and start speaking our voice and our mind politically. And uh, Ian Decker, what do you think? Um, so in addition to what I do here, I organize nationally for that network. I talked about Students for a Democratic Society, um, and they have chapters all over the country. I can tell you that before we were maybe getting one chapter a month added. Now we're getting two to three a week. Um, so not only are we seeing all these protests, we are seeing a uh, rapid increase and a rapid escalation in the tactics and strategies used on, all, all on campuses all over the country. We're seeing a politicalization of our generation, and as Sam said, it's it's our generation stepping up to be heard um, in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, as far as I think the Mizzou, obviously it's against racism, but also it's about access to education. If you're afraid for your life, if you're afraid of being, you know, beat up by racists, um, you know, you're gonna you're more likely to drop out. You're not that's not access to education. So I think that this is um, there's very closely unified demands that are just barely adjusted for local circumstances. Um, well- so, I mean, I, I think that it's huge, I think that, and I think that we're definitely a part of it. We're, you know, Utah's on the map. Mm-hmm. So. I, I want to uh, run a, a comment by, this is a, a bit over the top. This is from Dr. Ben Carson, Republican presidential candidate. Um, but I'm sure he is speaking for some elements of, you know, conservative thought. He called the protest University of Missouri infantile. That's the word he used. Uh, he He's, uh, you know, upsetting the order, I think, and, and uh, they should go through... Better channels. I'm, I'm probably not paraphrasing him uh, accurately, but anyway, he used that word uh, infantile. I wonder, uh, turning with uh, Ian Decker, what what do you think? Just uh, you know, um, it's over the top, but 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 that sentiment that this is this is not the right way to go about things. 
Um, well, I think that ultimately, if you're not there doing it, if you're not there facing it, then it's not for you to say. Uh, Robespierre said that the people don't hand down judgments, they, hand, they, they cast lightning bolts. That's what we're seeing at the University of Missouri. We're seeing uh, the people at that university in the thousands leaving, leaving classes, standing up to this. So call it infantile or call it night, but that's something real, and that's something that is going to be remembered in history, something that was the beginning of something huge. It's spreading to other campuses. Um, and, and I have to know there's efforts to create real organization out of this. Um, and yeah, so Ben Carson can call it whatever he'd like, but this is, this is already bigger than his campaign. Um, so. And would it reiterate for us, what are, what are the issues? Obviously there's, there's uh, racism. It's being protested against the university of Missouri. Uh, you're talking about access to education at university of Utah. Are, are these some of the themes that, that you see as a part of a huge movement? Did you say it? Um, I see I see a few things. I see that people are entering school and they are you know they're they're going in debt for their education. They're leaving, you know they're, they're leaving the education whether they're priced out or not. They're going into a job market that doesn't usually accommodate them, and people are struggling. Um, and what we're seeing right now, additionally, like you know we see unions. The unions have been negotiating good contracts for a long time. We're seeing heavy like we're seeing unions come into class consciousness at, a, at an incredible rate. The UAW just announced a strike, and I happen to know that people in all over and locals all over the all of the state in Milwaukee are driving out to go support them. So, like, we're seeing, like, it's not, so it's not just the student movement. It's about access to education. It's about racism. It's about, uh, it's about having, it's about living with dignity. And we're seeing not just this generation, um, but closer, gener- you know, like maybe a generation ahead and other generations. We're seeing them come to class consciousness. We're seeing them moved into the streets to demand change, and we're seeing them lose faith in, uh, in political uh, or in politicians' solutions. They're finding their own. I'll give uh, Samuel Grenny the, the last word on in this part of the program. What do, what what do you what do you think will happen? What do you hope will happen here? Um, I mean, what I think will happen. I mean, I I do honestly believe that this is the time that our generation starts stepping up. I mean, obviously, our action at the U is just one of 110 actions nationwide that day, and all of those different actions on campuses are looking to proliferate and have a prolonged effect. So. Um, I think and hope that we will see a sustained student movement moving into um, our generation rising up and taking the place that it's very important for it to have in order to start enacting the change we need in this country. We've been talking with Samuel Grenny. You heard from him right there. Utah Millennials for Bernie and Ian Decker, who's with the Revolutionary Student Union. We're talking about the Million Students March, which happened on the University of Utah campus on Thursday. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, following a break, we're going to be talking with Christopher Collard, research analyst with Utah Foundation, and with Matthew Chingo, senior fellow with the Urban Institute. More following the break. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. Talk to your parents about their driving abilities. Anxiety producing? Absolutely. Ask yourself five questions. Can they find their way home on a familiar road? Have they driven without fender benders, tickets, or scrapes on their car? When you ride with them, do they react appropriately? Are there medical issues that impact strength or cognition? Would you allow young children to ride with them? Be prepared with driving alternatives. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan. Advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. 
Sometimes the best way to stay safe is to take a couple of risks. Oftentimes, when we're trying to make ourselves safer, we're actually doing things that may make us complacent or take more different risks and end up having different types of disasters. That's the story of the financial crisis. I'm Kai Rizdal. Why too much safety can be a bad thing. Next time on Marketplace from APN. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about student debt. We're also talking about tuition and minimum wage. Those were the three things that were uh, called for at the Million Students March at the University of Utah on Thursday. Quoting from the Deseret News, protesters rallied and marched on Thursday calling for free tuition at public universities, cancellation of all student debt, and implementation of a $15 minimum hourly wage for university employees. I talked previously with Ian Decker with Revolutionary Student Union and Samuel Grenny with Utah Millennials for Bernie. They were instrumental in organizing that march. We now bring in uh, Christopher Collard, who is a research analyst with the Utah Foundation. Christopher Collard, welcome to the uh, program. Thank you. And Matthew Chingos, who's senior fellow with the Urban Institute. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Christopher. You uh, you did a, a piece recently uh, based on some surveys, I think, there at the Utah uh, Foundation, uh, quoting from, from the uh, summary the ballooning amount of student debt is startling. Across the country, it adds up to almost $1.3 trillion in total. As a comparison, quoting this, uh, that's almost how much the U.S. currency is in uh, circulation. You go on to say that it's uh, the picture a little bit better in Utah than it is uh, nationally. But I wonder if you could talk just in general about uh, about student debt, where it is today. Okay, so in, in general, you kind of covered covered my main points. Um, the, the level of student debt covers... Uh, pretty much is the same amount of every dollar actually in circulation. That's about all those dollars add up to the total amount of student debt across the nation. Um, recently, the Pew Research Center um, said that about just under 40% of households headed by an, an adult younger than 40 have student debt, which is the highest share on record. Um, so, so nationally, it's, it's kind of a concerning, it's a concerning point, although it's a little bit different here in Utah. And I wonder why, you know, why this has been increasing. I remember when I went to school, and that's, that's been some years now, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there were, I went on a lot of grants. I did have some debts, but it was very minimal. I was able to pay those off quite quickly. Right. And so um, across the nation, I'm not entirely sure why, why that may be. Looking to Utah, um, it's a little bit more clear that the state is not paying for the share of tuition it used to pay in public universities as it was in the past. So in 2000, um, tuition covered, like the, 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 the amount the student paid of tuition was only 28% of the total cost of, of putting that student through school. The state took on the other 70%, 72%. Um, however, um, this year in 2015, it's a basically a 50-50 split. So the, the student is carrying more of the burden of, of getting a public education. Let me turn to Matthew Shingos with the Urban Institute. I wonder nationally, uh, it, it, is it growing by you know, and by how much the student debt overall? The student debt overall certainly has increased by by a large amount over the last couple of decades. Um, in recent years, the the pace of increase has has slowed. Uh, you know, a lot of the re- recent increase over the last five or so years was due to people entering college during the during the Great Recession. So as that has uh, petered out. Uh, the increases in student debt have not been as uh, as large as they have been previously. Uh, 
Now, I'm sure some people would say, well, why? You know, the, um, the, this debt on the individual level. You know, can't students work, you know, work their way through school the way, you know, the way Dad did? Well, you know, that's going up for a number of reasons, which, you know, we've covered some of them already. So if you just look at the total outstanding number, the, I'm not sure what, 1.2, 1.3 trillion it is now, that's going, that's gone up in part because more people are going to college and people are staying in college longer. They're um, getting more uh, degrees. But then it's also gone up because people are paying more out of their pockets uh, for college. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, uh, in the public sector, state disinvestment in, in higher education. The, the, the state taxpayers are are putting in a, a lower subsidy, so the colleges are raising their, their tuition. So, so it's both of those factors. It's more people going to college, and it's people paying more on average. Hmm. I wanted to check in with the, uh, this growing phenomenon of multi-generational uh, student, student debt, and I'll start uh, with uh, Matthew Chingos on this. I'm reading from an Associated Press article, uh, which is uh, quoted in the uh, Desert News National Edition, um, that... Uh, for some families, it's it's kind of a a revolving cycle. A, you know, dad comes out of college with a bunch of student debt, struggles to pay that off over time, and because of that, is not able to help pay for juniors, uh, you know, tuition. And then he goes into debt, and it it just continues through generations. I'm not sure how how systematic of an issue that is, particularly given that you know borrowing levels were. You know, much lower, uh, say, 20 years ago, when the when the parents of today's uh, college kids were were themselves in college. I think likely a more prevalent phenomenon is that of parents borrowing to send their own kids to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's now a, a federal program called the Plus Program, which lets uh, most parents borrow pretty much any amount they want from the federal government, no questions asked, up to the cost. Of attendance, so there there are some instances of parents really getting themselves into financial trouble because they want to do the right thing for their kids, but are are taking on loans from the government that they that they can't afford. Uh, Christopher Collard, what what do we see in Utah? Um, so in Utah, we we see only about only about fifty percent of the population under thirty five actually holds student debt. But the surprising thing is um, there's about 31% of those between 35 and 50, and 15% of those 50, 50 years and older also have some level of student debt. So we're seeing, we're seeing like student debt across several age groups. Um, what, I want to take a look at these, these uh, demands from the protest, and the, the gentlemen who were on, the organizers of the protest, uh, you know, did say that they, they realize that they're not, you know, at least tomorrow they're not going to get these uh, demands. They're looking for at least for a tuition freeze at Utah's universities and uh, colleges. Um, but just taking that on face value, Matthew Chingos, would would cancellation of all student debt be be workable at, at any point in the future? I mean, of course, you know, if the government wanted to, you know, write a one point two trillion dollar check, they could probably do it. They'd have to have to borrow a lot of money, but they're already pretty good at borrowing money and having uh, future generations uh, pay for it. But I think it would be a huge mistake to forgive um, all student loan debt because it would be a huge handout to the wealthy. Um, you know, something like thirty-five, forty percent of all student loan debt in this country is held by the wealthiest uh, quarter of Americans, and that's because how much. Uh, student loan debt you have is not a very good proxy for how much trouble you're in. It turns out people with large balances, with large amounts of student loan debt, tend to be folks like doctors and lawyers who can pay it off just fine, whereas people with smaller balances who, say, went to a for-profit college for a semester or two and then dropped out, 
those are the folks in trouble. So if we forgive all the outstanding student loan debt, that's basically like a, like a tax cut that goes to, goes to wealthy people. Uh, what do you think, Christopher Collard? Is this, uh, at any point in the future, is this doable? There's kind of similar data in, in Utah. Um, looking at those, like those who obtain a four-year degree, um, and so looking at that, sorry, we'll start off with the average level of student debt. Uh, in Utah, it's around $20,000. And so that, that's roughly 230 to $250 a month paying back over the next 10 years. However, once you hit a four-year degree, um, on average, uh, you ha- earn $10,000 more than just some college, no degree. So that's an extra $830 a month. So even, even though you do have that extra debt we'll added on, you have additional means for paying that off. Um, and those for, for those with advanced degrees, they generally earn around $2,000 more than, than those who have no college. And that's, that's just fresh out of college. As you progress on through your career, for example, those over 34, um, that, that gap widens to, to about $20,000 difference between those with a four-year degree and those with no degree. And then another $20,000 difference between those with an advanced degree and those with a four-year degree. So while, while it might be an issue, and especially like as, as you're leaving college, you have a lot of big steps you're taking in life, and it can definitely feel like a burden. Um, but the capacity is there to, to kind of pay that off and, and take care of that student debt, and especially in Utah. The uh, protesters' second demand, I'll start with Christopher Collard on this, um, yeah, free tuition. They're saying there other nations do this. And it's uh, it's seen as a university education seen as a right, and not a privilege, and, and therefore free education. In other words, total subsidy and not not just heavily subsidized. What what would it take to, to make uh, that happen? So so that's a, that's an interesting question. I think it depends a lot on on the values of of either the country or the state. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that when when you educate your population, there's there's additional economic output that comes from the growth of that. Um, at the same time. Um, the the benefit goes both to the aggregate and community or the the aggregate population as they have a, a higher level of education. But additionally, the the person himself or herself also gets a lot of a lot of benefit out of that. Um, I, I talked a little bit about the difference in wages. I mean, that's that's an additional twenty thousand dollars a year for for several several years throughout your career. And so if, if you're going to be benefiting so largely from, from an investment of the state, it makes sense for you to bear a fraction of the cost. And so it really is up to the state and, and up to kind of um, the people in the state, the voters, as to what, what they think is a fair proportion for the student to bear and what is a fair portion for the state to bear. And so in the past, Utah has, has borne up to 72%, and now it's, it's a little bit more equal where, where Utah, the state of Utah is sharing the cost 50-50 with the student. Uh, Matthew Chingo, so I wonder what you, your view on, on this. Uh, the, the, the demand is, uh, from these protesters anyway, for free tuition. Um, what, what would that take? Is, is that workable? Is that doable? What would that do economically? I, I, I agree with all of what was, what was just said. You know, these plans for, for free college tuition, they raise these thorny questions about the distributional consequences of doing that. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of the folks going to college are from, from upper-income families, and as was noted, these students themselves are, on average, going to go on to do pretty well uh, later in, in their lives. I think I also have to think about kind of the system of taxation we have to pay for these policies. So in a lot of European countries where college is free for everyone, the taxation system is much more progressive. So higher income folks, they pay for it, and they pay for it through higher taxes. Whereas in this country, we don't tax higher income folks uh, nearly as much as is done in, in other countries. So, so I think it's a little bit hard to say that, we should give everyone, but disproportionately higher income folks, 
free college tuition, but then have them pay you know lower tax rates than than higher income folks pay in other countries. Hmm. Uh, if you just joined us, if you just joined us, we are talking with uh, Matthew Chingo, senior fellow with the Urban Institute, and Christopher Collard, research analyst with Utah Foundation. We're responding to a protest at the University of Utah on Thursday. Uh, the protesters are asking for, calling for free tuition at public universities, cancellation of all student debt, and implementation of $15 minimum hourly wage for university employees. Uh, if you would like to join the conversation, we'd love to get your take on this, perhaps your experience, 1-800-826-1495. Toll free anywhere you're listening, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Um, I'll direct this first to uh, Matthew Chingos. Uh, I was talking to a friend uh, just a couple of days ago. We were talking about this very issue. And uh, they were saying that the people that, that, that they sort of interacted with and that this colored their view of this issue were a lot of people who were taking just a long time meandering their way through college. And that uh, it was one way they're piling up a bunch of student debt, perhaps uh, taking, uh, you know, getting into majors that wouldn't pay a lot when they got out of school. In other words, uh, saying that the, the, some people choose to, uh, to, to do college this way, and therefore, as a society, we shouldn't be so fast to forgive student debt or, or be as worried uh, about it. Um, and I was telling them that some of the people I interact with are just you know, trying to get into majors where they can, uh, they can earn a lot. They're trying to go through as fast as they can. And, and so I, I wonder where the percentages are. I'm sure you've studied both, both of those classes of people. I mean, extended time to degree is a, is a real issue. You know, a four-year degree used to be something of a four-year degree, whereas a four-year degree is no longer a four-year degree. It's a five- or a six-year uh, degree. You know, time to degree among people who do finish has gone up quite a bit over the last couple of years. You know, I uh, co-authored a book uh, on this subject. We talked about that uh, back in 2009. And, of course, writing that, I talked to a friend who told me that at the public university where he went to college, graduating in four years was like leaving the party at 10.30. Um, there was just this kind of cultural aversion to, to finishing a four-year degree in four years, and that can have real implications both for the kids and their families who are taking on more debt for extended um, enrollment and for taxpayers who are subsidizing these kids for extra years when those subsidies could be go- going to, to other kids um, who can't go because uh, people are taking too long to finish. Uh, and I think you also raised an important point about uh, thinking about um, the likely earnings from different programs of study. There's huge variation within the same uh, colleges and how much people make after they graduate, depending on um, what they got a degree in. And so there's now efforts underway, spearheaded in large part by the Obama administration, to provide more information on uh, earnings. And right now the federal data are just at the institution level, but hopefully uh, within the next couple of years we'll also have data at the level of program of study, you know, by major, by uh, institution. And the idea is not that everyone should go be an engineer and no one should be a poet. I mean, obviously, there's people who go to college for lots more reasons than just to make money. But when you're making an important financial decision, thinking about spending thousands of dollars and, more importantly, borrowing thousands of dollars, it's really important you do a little bit of a cost-benefit analysis and try and think a little bit down the road and say, for the degree I'm getting, will I be able to repay this debt in a reasonable fashion? Christopher Collard, uh, I'll pose the same question to you, but phrase it in this way. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Senator Howard Stevenson, state senator here in Utah, phrase degrees to nowhere, that he worries about this point, that some some people are getting degrees that are not going to earn them that much going down the road, and uh, 
and therefore he's worried about that cost-benefit analysis. Uh, that, that for sure is, is kind of a concerning factor right now. The state of Utah is in a little bit of a labor crunch. Is, is there's, there's a lot of employers looking for the right skill of employees. Um, in, our, in a recent survey that we've just done, um, roughly about 40% listed that as this big, single biggest problem with Utah's labor force is they just can't find enough skilled laborers. Um, and so a lot of people are, are looking to a mismatch in what the university produces as opposed to what industry needs. And there are currently a lot of actions taking place um, between, between industry and education to try, to try and help um, education um, understand industry's needs. And, and some of that is happening as, um, as industries and counselors and, or sorry, industries and companies are reaching out to like high school counselors and college counselors to help them understand where the jobs are. Um, DWS, the Department of Workforce Services here in Utah, is trying to serve as a role of, of providing a, a neutral um, data set that the counselors can turn to in, in showing students potential opportunities of, of what jobs can pay a lot more and, and what jobs can't. Um, so we're, we're actually in the middle of a report looking at, at how, how well um, education kind of responds to industry needs. And, and we've, one thing that we've, we've kind of seen is there are, there are a lot of a lot of programs all over the state going on to try and to try and make that um, to try and make the what, what education produces align a little bit better with industry needs. Although at the same time, not everyone in education uh, uh, agrees that 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 should be the single focus of education. They also point out that education serves a need of building of building good citizens, of teaching people how to learn, of enriching lives, and so that's that's a little bit of, of something to consider as well. Yeah, uh, turn back to Matthew Chingos for this. Uh, you know, when Senator, Senator Stevenson says that, then the humanities pushes back. Um, and as as you said, I get you know, we sh- hopefully we won't tell our kids you can't be a poet. What would you say? You, you probably ought not to come out of uh, the English department with a lot of debt if you want to be a poet. Exactly. So, you know, think think carefully about you know how much you're likely to make and what kind of life you want to live and how much it's going to cost and, and, and when you're at the point of making a decision about where to go to college and maybe you're thinking about the, the lower cost public option versus the higher cost private option um, to, to think about do, do I want to pay more um, when when the return might not be there um, to, to make it easy to, to pay off the debt. Uh, Christopher Collar, turning back to you, uh, your, your, your report here from the Utah Foundation uh, talked about um, how student debt affects uh, people in you know kind of major life points uh, going down the road, and I, I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that. Yeah, so so there's been a lot of research um, nationwide that kind of looks at, at how that like graduating with a higher level student debt can can delay marriage, it can delay the number of children you have, and it can even delay home ownership. And so we, we looked specifically at here in Utah how that's happening, and, and we don't really see any relationship between having student debt and, and whether you're married or whether you have children. Um, there's a lot of other demographic figures that are much better predictors of, of whether that will happen. However, we do see evidence that, that student debt does, does impede the purchase of a home. So those who have student debt are 6% more likely to rent a home. And for those under the age of 35 who are kind of in, in that zone of, of like transitioning away from school into a career, um, those who have who have student debt are 14% less likely to to own a home than than their counterparts who don't own student debt. 
And that's kind of what some, some national data has also found. So data from, from the Pew Research Center has found that while student debt doesn't really affect the level of income college graduates have, it does have a large impact on the, the median net worth. Um, so those, those who graduate with student debt are, are much less a, unable to save. They're much uh, less unable to, to make um, big purchases like, like purchasing a home that, that kind of is such a, a builder of net worth. For those for those people, and so they do they do are they are disadvantaged, or those those students who who come out with that are do have that disadvantage. Just have about a minute uh, left. I want to turn back to uh, Matthew Chingos and uh, check in with the both of my guests in the first part of the program. We're in support of Bernie Sanders' plan, which essentially would tax Wall Street in order to get the money to cancel student debt. Um, you referred to this a little bit earlier in the program. What if you could come back to this? What uh, what would the effects be here of, of such a plan? Uh, of a plan to make college free or free yeah, of debt or uh, free, what? free of debt and student debt, and, and essentially uh, Bernie Sanders would. I don't have the you know details in front of you, but the the idea would be to you know tax on Wall Street. Go and they'd go and uh, you know higher taxes on on businesses, especially the Wall Street business. My understanding of the Sanders plan is is that it proposes a, a financial transactions tax. So it's not exactly a, it's certainly not a higher income tax on, on wealthy folks. It's a financial tax on the financial transactions themselves. Now, I'm, I'm no expert on, on tax policy, but it sounds like a bit of a, of, of a political gimmick. And what you really want to be thinking about is the broader question of the, of the schedule of the tax rates that fall on people um, by, by income. And, and the Sanders plan, as I understand it, has nothing to do with you know, forgiving outstanding student debt, and it's instead to create a federal-state partnership or that would, in, in theory, allow uh, states to, to, to put more money with federal money into, uh, into colleges so they don't have to charge so much for, for tuition. So it's one way to go, but I think it has a lot of potential, potential uh, holes in it. We are out of time. We'll leave it there. Of course, this discussion will be continuing, and the gentleman in the first half of the program said they are now, that the realistic goal is to call for a tuition freeze, and we'll see how that happens here in Utah. We've been talking with Matthew Chingo, Senior Fellow with the Urban Institute, and Christopher Collard, Research Analyst with the Utah Foundation. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. And I uh, hope you'll join me tomorrow. I'll be talking with uh, newsman Ted Koppel. His new book is Lights Out, A Cyber Attack, A Nation Unprepared, Surviving the Aftermath. Join me tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah public radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Hi, I'm Rue Mahoney from Stokes Nature Center. I think it's fair to say that in our collective imagination, the image of a Native American warrior on horseback is as iconic of the West as buffalo herds and wagon trains. And if you know a bit about Native American history, or even if you've just recently watched the 1990 Kevin Costner blockbuster Dances with Wolves, you probably associate horse culture with plains people like the Lakota Sioux. But a special addition to a traveling exhibit from the American Natural History Museum in New York City suggests that our state may in fact have been the birthplace of Western horse culture among First Peoples. While horses were native to prehistoric North America, the species went extinct on this continent at the end of the last ice age. It wasn't until the 16th century, when Spanish conquistadors like Hernan Cortes were entrenched in efforts to overthrow the Aztec Empire of Mexico, that horses were reintroduced to North America. The research shows that the Ute people, from whom the state of Utah draws its names, were the first to acquire horses through trade with Mesoamerica. 
Prior to the arrival of horses, the Ute were comprised of seven groups linked by a common language and shared religious holidays. They occupied modern-day Utah, as well as parts of Colorado and northern New Mexico. They lived in semi-nomadic tribal groups, erecting bark huts called wickyups and trading in fur and small-to-mid-sized game like mink and deer. With the arrival of Spanish traders from Mexico, Ute culture was revolutionized. Trade with the Spanish introduced firearms to the Ute culture and led to their becoming notorious slave traders, but it also introduced the Ute to horses. In the way that the first transcontinental locomotive would later open a new chapter in America's industrial history, the horse accelerated the Ute predilection for travel and trade. They quickly set their sights on large game, like buffalo and elk, and adopted the more transportable teepee to better accommodate their broadening home range. Better transportation and a new vocation for breeding livestock spurred Ute traders to travel further afield to other First Peoples of the West. And in this way, the horse spread to the Blackfoot, the Sioux, and other native peoples we associate with the horse culture of the Plains Indians. In fact, by the 18th century, the widespread adoption of the horse would prove a significant influence on the culture of almost every Native American group between the Mississippi and the Rockies. Unfortunately, the Ute horse culture was not long-lived. The Ute's increasing habit of capturing and trading Paiute and Navajo hostages to the Spanish for guns and horses bred intertribal violence that lasted long into the 19th century. When Mormon settlers began arriving in the mid-1800s, the Ute ran into violent conflicts with the encroaching Europeans and found themselves lacking the Native American allies their Shoshone neighbors had more carefully cultivated. By 1861, President Lincoln created the Uinta Valley Reservation, and the forced relocation of the once widely ranging Ute people began. For Wild About Utah and Stokes Nature Center, I'm Rue Mahoney. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. 